Hello, everyone, and welcome to Minute 26 of Movie Rob Minute, the daily podcast where we take a wild trip through the 1987 John Hughes comedy, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me today, and hopefully this entire week, is Jim O'Kane of the Rocketeer Minute, the Apollo 13 Minute, and lots and lots and lots and lots of other Minute shows, including a few that have a lot of people on them. So we'll, we'll, we'll probably talk about those sometime during the week. So w- welcome to the show, Jim. Okay, thanks, Rob. Thank you very much for having me over. Uh, this is uh, an interesting movie to I, – I, I would never have thought of being part of this. I have uh, – I, I am I, – I now, this may be surprising, but I'm not a big John Hughes fan. I've seen this movie uh, a bunch of times, um, but uh, I never thought anybody would ever ask me about it. So this will be an interesting, an interesting week, I hope. Well, isn't that um, part of the whole idea of doing movies by minutes that you can even discuss movies that you don't like as much? Yeah, I, actually, sometimes they come up with better content when you're talking about uh, movies that you're you're not fond of or things that well, you know, and, and it gives you ideas of of what to pick apart and what to uh, how you could figure out how to make it a better movie. Um, right. I you know the the thing that I do have to say positively about John Hughes is he does know his audience. He knows what his audience likes, and he was able to churn out a bunch of films. That uh, that people responded to, and uh, right. yeah, that is a that is a plus for John Hughes. And well, this movie, as you as you know, and everyone else knows, is is a unique John Hughes movies because it's not one that's geared towards teenagers. This yeah. is more of an adult type of of John Hughes film. Even though I guess you could say Vacation is also an adult movie, also, but but this is one of the 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 humor is not teenage humor. Let's put it that way. I agree. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, uh, it's a highbrow it's highbrow type of humor. Yeah, in between, and it does it does have slapstick in it too. But it's yes. it, yeah, I think it it is not aimed at his typical target audience of uh, Gen Xers or you know at the time where teenagers or young adult young young adults. Right. So yeah, it, it definitely definitely goes that way. But uh, he did manage to capture that. I think some of the you know I, I think the audience that was watching things like The Breakfast Club or uh, Ferris Bueller would probably stay around for for this film. Yeah, the question is is whether all of those teenagers would get this movie as well as they get the other ones. Yeah, exactly. You know, this again, this is this is geared towards a completely different audience. Yeah. And I mean, there's there's so much information that we've already discussed over the last few weeks that that would probably shock you. Did you know that the original first cut of this movie was nearly four hours? Yeah, I had I had read that. And I was like, I can't imagine four hours of this it would just be an ordeal. Um, after a while, I mean, it, it's it it. It is a bit of a you know a, um, a single joke movie of you know here's a man with a, a series of calamities befall him and you're you know you're watching him struggle through through this again and again and again and just you know rinse and repeat on all the uh, on the jokes coming out of that is like oh isn't it awful he's 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 in a bad hotel he's lost his luggage he's had stuff stolen from him and it just you know it continues on and on but that's that is typical of john Hughes's writing i mean ferris bueller's day off is is much like it, it's almost a cartoon thing that you have uh, a gag mm-hmm. and then it's repeated again and again um right i think in i mean he varies the gag a little yeah, bit oh, it's not the same exact gag each every, each and every time yeah it, it is like a you know. it it's i mean it worked for the roadrunner and the coyote so i you know I, i'd say this is about the same the same <laughs> idea that you if you have something that works do it 20 times and your audience will stay for it so but yeah four right. four hours i think that would try even the best uh, the best john hughes fan 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I have to admit, as much as I love this movie, and I've always been curious to see the four-hour cut, but now that I've read the script, and in every episode I also mention the differences in the script, because they actually did film the entire script. So there's tons of stuff that was cut out, and most of what they cut out helps make this a better movie. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Because, and, because as you said, it's the same joke over and over. It, they sometimes stretch things a little too much. Yeah, but th there still still are some great stuff in in the script, which is why I keep talking about it. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and you know, brevity is the soul of wit, and I think Hughes, uh, you know, he trusted in he trusted in getting out the razor blade and cutting the cutting this uh, the the film down, which is a hard thing to do when you've come up with something you think, oh, this is a great line, I don't want to lose it, but if it makes the story stronger, then you you do that. Um, yeah, I think if if we can get a little bit into uh, the minute that we're talking about here with uh, yeah, of course we are. <laughs> That's what we're here for. So minute 26 starts with Neil continuing his diatribe against Dell and goes all the way till Dell begins to try and defend himself. So, I mean, this entire minute and pretty much this entire week, uh, except for, I think, Friday, is the two of them arguing the entire time. Right. So we, we, we have we have some great dialogue that from the research that I did, it's this is pretty much all ad-libbed because it's not in the script. Yeah, and they're both, I mean, they're both great improvisational actors to to, to pull this out. If anybody could do it, uh, these two, you know, Steve Martin, king of one-liners and, and ad-libs, and John Candy is perfect in his reactions. I mean, he's, he's really, he's mastering the scene here, even though he doesn't say anything. He just, you know, he, he's mostly reacting to this uh, vitriol yes. that, that Steve Martin is feeling. Completely. Um. And I think this minute to me shows the major weakness of the film. The, the major weakness in this film is the miscasting of Steve Martin. I think Steve Martin playing the straight man was a mistake. I don't think, uh, I, I mean, we've seen him in other straight man roles, but he's, um, it, it's, I, 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 you don't get the feeling that he has that kind of vitriol in him. He can do it in a humorous way. But here it's just straight out anger and just being mean. He's just he's trying to trying to hurt um, Del Griffith's car. You know, De yeah. Del Griffith. Okay, I, he, I definitely agree with you I, on that. But part of the whole thing in this in this in this whole movie is you, he has a great arc. This is one of the few yeah. scenes where he's this mean. You know, he he is mean in a few other places along the way, but he realizes pretty quickly that he doesn't need to be mean. You know, and things change along the way with that. Yeah. And it, it is, it's, it's playing uh, Martin much against his type. We, we picture him as happy go lucky. I mean, he does do slow burns. I think of, you know, other films he's been in like Bowfinger where he's been uh, put down upon and it, but it, it, he has an internal optimism, which is lacking here. You don't see this optimism in him for most of the movie until he finally, you know, well, they're only got further into the film, but I mean, he does have a, a transformation toward the end, but I still think it's not Steve Martin's strongest point in being um, the, the heavy, the bad guy right. in this thing. Okay, I, I, I can I can accept that. I mean, there's there's also stuff that's in the original script that was filmed that they cut out, which also causes part of the reason why he actually acts the way that he does. I mean, there's a whole subplot that was completely cut out that he's in a very very deep rift with his wife. 
every time they're on the phone, yeah. they get into arguments and she keeps hanging up on him and she keeps yelling at him and she believes that he's making this all up, that he was really not stuck, you know, and things like that. Yeah. So th I think that's one of the problems with editing a movie down so much. I mean, to edit a movie down almost two and a half hours. So there's still stuff that there's still residual aspects of the original cut that are here that make it a little more difficult if you don't know that information. You know, if you know that this yeah. is this is maybe part of the background of this character, then you might accept it a little little more. Yeah, and, and that's I mean it's true in most movies that when you lose an entire character or you know not an entire character, but if you lose, you, you pretty much do. She's not. She's not. Susan's not in the movie very much. Yeah, yeah, which probably really, really uh, hurt that actress a bit. I mean, I, I imagine being, you know, telling everybody you're, you're in a Steve Martin, John Candy movie, and it's like, yeah, there's my 30 seconds, here I go, and here I am at the top of the stairs, and you know, that's that's that. And I get to smile, but, and I get to get angry on the phone. That's all I get to do. Yeah. I, uh, one time I had interviewed uh, a woman named uh, Mary Linda Rapoli. She was, uh, she's an actress, and uh, uh, she had... Uh, you probably know her if you watch the original series of Star Trek. She played uh, uh, Chekhov's hippie girlfriend on the Way to Eden episode. Okay, and, and uh, she was back in the back in the sixties. She was in the movie in Cold Blood. She was big, not big, but she was on her way up. And she was going to be in a Gregory Peck movie. She was in uh, John uh, John uh, Sturgis production of uh, Marooned, Columbia Pictures in nineteen seventy. Okay, and she got the role of Gregory Peck's daughter. And uh, Gregory Peck in the movie is the mission controller of a, a doomed flight of an Apollo, an Apollo spacecraft that's stuck in orbit and the people are going to die and they're trying to figure out some way to save them. And Gregory Peck comes across through the whole thing. He, he goes through the, all these explanations about why it costs too much and they can't send up a rescue mission because there's just not enough time to go save them. And they're just going to have to write off three astronauts. And the whole movie... Uh, he just sounds like a monster through the whole thing uh, in telling people. And uh, the screenwriter uh, put in this one scene with his daughter, uh, Gregory Peck's daughter, Mary Linda Rapoli, meets him at, uh, at an airport in Houston. And uh, she has a brief discussion with him. And she said, you are going to do everything to save them, aren't you? And he looks at her and he said, we have to. And it would, you know, it, it changes his whole personality. What he's wow. like. He's not a so they decided the scene wasn't really necessary and they cut it for time. So she, she she's listed <laughs> in the credits, but she's not listed, she's not in the movie. And I, I talked with her about that. And she said, you know, for a week and a half, I got to play Gregory Peck's daughter. I was somebody <laughs> and she was telling all of her friends and then they went to see the movie and it's like, where's your scene? And, oh, you know, so I, I guess uh, it's like Kevin I, Costner in the big chill. You know, exactly. You know, you <laughs> <laughs> did see his wrist, so that was that was a, a help. But uh, yeah, I, I just you know, I guess that's just yeah. part of the business. Well, I and uh, she could probably be happy that she got paid. Director's cut. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she 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 said everything wound up cutting room floor, and she's never seen the scene. But she, after that movie, she got uh, holiday cards. Ev you know, every December she got she got cards from the Peck family uh, to to my uh, Hollywood okay. daughter, and <laughs> you know, it's just just very sweet. So. Um, uh, you know, at least she got at least she got a friendship of Gregory Peck with her, which is yeah. that, that's nice. <laughs> so basically, the the diatribe that uh, Neil started yesterday, where he was starting, where he reached the point where he starts talking about suicide and things like that, and then he starts talking about being in an, an insurance seminar, and he basically says, "I could tolerate any insurance seminar for days, 
I can sit there and listen to them go on and on with a big smile on my face. They'd say, how can you stand it? And I'd say, and that's the way the minute on Friday ended. And today we continue with that where he says, because I've been with Del Griffith. I can take anything. You know what they'd say? They'd say, I know what you mean. The shower curtain ring guy. <laughs> it's like going on a date with a chatty Kathy doll. I expect you to have a little string on your chest, you know, that you pull out and have it snap back. Except I wouldn't pull it out and snap it back. You would. And he, then he, he has this very awkward ah, 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 sound <laughs> as he's as he's doing yeah. the motions, which, again, that is perfect Steve Martin to be able to do that type of, of what, what would you call it? A, um, it, it no, just or, he, it, he's, he's able to do a mime act, basically, by, by you know, pulling yeah. the string by the way that he's doing it. And, and then he says, and by the way, you know, when you're telling those little stories, here's an idea. Have a point. <laughs> it makes it so much more interesting for the listener. And at this point, we actually get Dell's response where he says, you want to hurt me? Go right ahead if it makes you feel any better. I'm an easy target. And then he says, yeah, you're right. So, I mean, that's pretty much all the dialogue we have here. But this dialogue tells yeah. us so much about these characters. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, Steve Martin isn't necessarily the actor that you're going to think of as being a mean person. You know, I, I guess you can sort of say the same thing with Tom Hanks. If, if you were to put Tom Hanks in this in this scene also, he would feel very out of place by being mean to someone yeah. else. And so Steve Martin fits into, he does fit into that category. I, com I completely uh, agree with you about it. And and I think that, that they do take things a little too far here, but it still works. Given that, uh, who would you who would you cast in the uh, in the Steve Martin role? That's a very very good question, and I always try and keep myself from 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 looking for other people to cast in roles because again, I love this movie, and I think that the the dynamic and the chemistry between Steve Martin and John Candy works so well. I mean, I know that that the the role of John Candy originally was supposed to be played by either John Goodman or John Travolta. I know those were two of the names that were thrown out. And I think Tom Hanks, if I remember correctly, I think Tom Hanks was was also supposedly up for the role of Neil. I'm, I'm trying to remember from, from yeah. my notes from weeks ago when we discussed that. I would have put, I mean, I know they wanted A-list actors, but I, I would have brought in, well, I mean, one A-list actor I could think of would be Dabney Coleman, I think would have worked as a uh, as an actor here because he, he plays good frustration. And I think having a... Uh, um, you know, a revelation, uh, this transform, this transformation, I think that would have worked with him to a lesser extent in a, um, you know, considering it's a John Hughes movie, he could have gone into his, uh, stable of characters and bring, uh, brought, uh, Paul Gleason on board, Paul Gleason in the, uh, in the breakfast club as the, uh, the, the teacher who got stuck with the yeah, Saturday detention. Um, I, I could see Paul Gleason being able to come across as acerbic, and um and also being able to have that change of heart uh in there there's yeah there's some there's so many opportunities that uh of being like david warner might have been a good a good choice here too david warner can play comedy but also be um rotten to the core you know or my, even michael caine would have worked if you want to go you know if you think of like dirty rotten scoundrels think of michael caine's turn in that right okay i mean um, i think i think i think you please they're all great yeah. actors but i I don't think any of them would have been able to bring what Steve Martin brings here because Steve Martin really knows how to toe, toe the line with his, with this character. 
and you can feel so much for him. You, he he yeah. fits in as this executive. I don't know if Michael Caine would have fit in as this type of executive. He might have been able to do part part of the the comedy and part of the meanness that you need to do here, but I still it, it's hard for me to picture anyone else in this role. Okay, yeah, I mean, I just I'm, yeah, these are all all just basically what ifs. I mean, I, I picture like would Bill Murray have worked? He might. I mean, you, we saw Bill Murray being this kind of a character in Groundhog Day, um, right? And and Scrooge. Yeah, and Scrooge. He he can be the rotten guy, um, but uh, yeah. Again, this is this is where we're at, and this is you know you can't really. Go yeah, <laughs> this movie was made 35 years ago. There 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 is rumors that they're they're working on a remake with Will Smith oh. and. Uh, I think Kevin Hart, which I really hope they don't do. I mean, they're both great actors, but I don't think they could do justice to this type of movie. And, yeah, and it's like it's comedy. Comedy is you know lightning in a bottle. I don't think you can do it again. Um, and right. there's other people write stuff. Why not? You know, I, I, we've, we've. I mean, it's understood that there's so much money at stake with these movies that you have to go with a sure thing, and that's why you remake things, even if they're not great. Then they're going to bring in some cash. Um, yeah, that's true. But it's uh, yeah, it's especially now in COVID. You know, you're not going to be able to bring in that much cash in the theaters. Yeah, exactly. And so for, for something like this, hopefully they'd they probably turn this into a, uh, a Netflix six part series. <laughs> <laughs> Why well, only six parts? Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> you can you can you can stretch it out to thirteen. Who knows? Yeah, we'll save it for season two. So, right. exactly. So one of the things that 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 was interesting in. In Neil's diatribe is the the fact that he mentions uh, Chatty Cathy. Yes. Okay. Now I'm I'm sure you know who or what Chatty Cathy. I, I was, am right? I am an, of of an age where there were, I knew I knew kids with uh, with Chatty Cathys, and uh, I think people now know them as they are valuable. Um, yeah, they they were valuable in the uh, classic toy category. Um, yeah. They were uh, they were yeah we're we're about we're about the same age. They're about. <laughs> About 60 years old now and uh it was i think it was it, it might not have been the original but it was one of the um the first uh pulse you know string pull talking dolls it was invented by the same uh the handlers the same people that invented the barbie doll so um very good wow and um you're you're that's impressive it wait did you look this up or you knew this no i'm old i remember <laughs> i just remember i know mattel mattel was the handlers um what was her name? Ruth, Ruth Handler, Ruth Handler. Yes. And Ruth and Elliot. Handler. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ruth. And I think they say, and Elliot, but it was actually Ruth did most of the work on this stuff. Elliot was just kind of like the guy that was, had to be with her because it was 1960 and they didn't believe that the woman would be able to come up with this great idea for a, um, you know, for, for a product. But, uh, Mattel, right. Mattel just, you know, conquered the world back around, around 1960. And I think, well, Barbie dolls came out first, but then, then Chatty Cathy came out, and it's just—it's basically—it's a—you uh, you pull the string, and inside was this little. As we've, as I, I was present at many dissections of uh, Chatty Cathy dolls. Uh, if you get you <laughs> two screws in her shoulders, and if you unscrewed the back, there was this small plastic cartridge, and it had a. I'm 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 moving my hands like we're doing this as a video, but um, we're, we're yeah. um, there was a small um. Like, like a, yeah, it, it, but it was a it, it was a piece of vinyl that would stretch out. Well, there were two versions. One that one had like a little a little phonograph record, and another one that was a little piece of vinyl that that stretched out that a needle would go through. And this coil, when you pull the string, it would pull the coil tight, and then when you let it go, the coil would unwind onto another reel over a um, 
uh, basically a phonograph needle and a, and a little uh, uh, plastic speaker. And so she would say different things. And there were there were like five or six tracks on the on the, eleven eleven. Oh, okay. I didn't I didn't you. And when you pulled on the string, the needle would jump and land on a different track. So you would play, uh, you, you'd play these things. And um, we had the, the, that would be the first thing that would break would be um, the, uh, the the vinyl. So uh, and they didn't have replacement vinyl. So after that, you had silent, you know, not so chatty Kathy. This, and the reason that they had the two screws so easily available was the second thing, besides the vinyl breaking, um, if you had to unscrew it because if you little kids would pull the string too hard and rip the string out. So, um, you know, you have to get your your dad to come in and unscrew it and, re, you know, get a get a piece of string and tie it on there and then find a find something that would hold it on the other side. And it was really hard to thread. I remember that through the middle of where her belly button would be. So um, oh, wow. that was okay. That was my my personal recollections of Chatty Cafe. And now, well, and okay, I, I did a little bit of research, okay. so I, I can expand a little on what okay. you said here. You, you you said a lot of of what I have here. So first of all, it was it was produced the first produced by Ruth and, and Elliot Handler in 1959, and they sold it for six years. Okay, it was released in stores starting in 1960, and they sold them for eighteen dollars in 1960. Okay, it was the second most popular. Oh. Which was yeah, a lot exactly. of money back then. It was yeah. the second most popular doll of the 1960s after Barbie, which was, as you mentioned earlier, also made by Mattel. Okay, the they have a a simple phonograph record inside the cavity behind the doll's abdomen, and that's how it would work, as you explained about the the metal coil and the the string and. Yeah, it was a it was a real Rube Goldberg kind of contraption, but it was it was amazing that it worked. And and they would eventually put those same ones would go into uh, the the talking GI Joe dolls, only about half the size oh, wow. when you open them up. <laughs> but uh, the only two I remember <laughs> the uh, the only two I can remember was that, like Chatty Cathy would tell you I love you, and then uh, she she'd say I hurt myself. So she was very. <laughs> She's very emotional about everything. Yeah. I love you. I hurt myself. I love you. And, um, so here, I'll, I'll go through the 11 but, phrases that, that, that they had there. Oh. It's, where are we going? Please carry me. Let's change my dress. Please brush my hair. I got hurt. I'm all tired. Will you play with me? Let's play house. I love you. I'm hungry. And tell me a story. Wow. Okay. Those those are the eleven ones. Now, a few years later, they they added another seven phrases. I unfortunately wasn't able to find all of them. I, I found that they they added "Let's play school" and "May I have a cookie." Those are two of the seven that 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 I know were not. Now, do you know who did the the voice for Chatty Kathy? Um, it, the the voice sounded. For, uh, oh, uh, whoever did. I, I think she sounded exactly like Cindy Lou Who on. Um, was it June Foray? Yes, it was. Yeah, it sounded like June Foray. Uh, uh, Cindy, <laughs> because it was June Foray. <laughs> Cindy Lou Who in um, that that was what was weird watching how the Grinch stole Christmas when, whenever Cindy Lou Who came out. It's like, wait, that's Hattie Kathy. So, oh, okay, it was June Foray. Oh, good. I'm, I I did not know that. Wow. Um, but yeah, and also she also did the voice for for Rocky from Rocky and Bullwinkle. Yep, that's right. Yeah, and and she was very well known for doing a lot of cartoon characters throughout the '40s, all the way up to the mid uh, 2000s. Yeah, she uh, she'd do uh, the the witch that was on um, that was on all the Warner Brothers cartoons that would run off, and then the, the her hairpins would stay in the air while she ran off. But yeah, she's a very very familiar voice to to kids my age. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm surprised they didn't have one that when you pulled the string, it said, go buy some more Mattel toys. Um, 
it was <laughs> <laughs> only when this one broke. Yeah, they. I think they sold they sold like a Chatty Cathy baby carriage that you could buy that would you'd sit her in. It would say Chatty Cathy on the sides of the baby carriage. Um, oh, and wow. they had like and like you know how Barbie had the whole different ensembles. They also had different. Like well that that one that they said you know I need to get change change my clothes they sold outfits that were they had little um they came in a box and it was like a little hanger and you could you could actually get a closet to put Chatty Cathy's clothes in a little little part well, of that makes sense yeah, yeah they they really knew how to yeah, accessories not included yeah yeah, yeah. they really and uh, considering <laughs> the thing never needed batteries it was pretty impressive um yeah but now one of the other things that 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 I found out we here is is that they use the same technology. For the CNC toys. Now those really? I remember. Oh, yeah. I grew up in the seventies, and and so I I remember those. Yeah, the, ca- you know, the cow was, says moo. It was moo this and, circle yeah. thing. Exactly, the cow says oh, moo. Okay. So they, they had the animal sounds where you like you pull the string and then it it, it moves around and wherever it lands. So it, it it says the animal and the sound they made. They also had the B says CNC, which recited different letters of the alphabet. And they're wow. at this point they they reached the the thing that was good about it was in the original ones they didn't need batteries, right? And yeah. the, the sound was produced by a simple low fidelity phonograph record that was driven by a metal coil wound by pulling the the toy string, okay, which yeah. is obviously the same mechanism that they used for for the Chatty Cathy dial, okay. And a whole bunch of movies and TV shows they they would have all of these different uh, toys. That were using the same type of thing until they reached a point where they 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 changed it and decided to use a lever instead of having the having you pull a string. You know, you you pull oh, a right. lever yeah. and then it would it would it would spin around. That's right. Yeah, that yeah the 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 that that farmer's one the the, the cow says thing. I remember that that had a lever along the side of it. Yeah. That, uh, but it started out the older ones had the had the pull string on the right. back. Right, um, and then they they wow. they eventually moved on to to battery operated ones, which were slightly different from what they had on the early ones. Instead of pulling the string, you 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 would uh, push it, and you, when you would that would release and make the the toy talk. And huh. and because it was battery operated, they could actually recite longer phrases than the the little one saying "I love you." You know, there were things that there were a lot <laughs> a lot you know a lot longer phrases that they were able to to say. And it, it basically reached the point where they were just everything turned into levers. And one of the reasons that they, they changed it to the lever was there was actually a little girl from Rhode Island that unfortunately became blind because the string snapped and wow. hit, her, hit her in the eye. So after a lawsuit, they decided to change things and, and make a uniform design of just using levers instead of the string. I mean, it's wow. surprising that it took 30 yeah. years for someone to lose an eye from that. Yeah, but uh, well it, it happened in a it happening in Rhode Island that's uh that's Mattel's backyard. I mean, they're they're right in Rhode Island, so I guess <laughs> they uh, uh def- definitely pro- I I used to li- I used to live just on the border of Rhode Island and used to work in Providence and uh everybody in it it it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a cliche, but everybody in Rhode Island knows everybody else in Rhode Island. So I think this was uh, it, it hit they, it hit they, home because they, they, too close they probably home, knew yeah. somebody who knew yeah. Um, but wow, that's a uh, amazing and yeah, it, it's I didn't realize growing up that that would be such a revolution of uh, uh, that Chatty Cathy would change Mattel's entire industry with. I mean, I had 
Well, I'm assuming the Hamptons uh, didn't think that either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, 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 they were, uh, I mean, I the uh, you know Barbie dolls were everywhere, but Chatty Cathy at the time was very popular. Every every little girl my age had a had a Chatty Cathy of some kind. I know they had knockoffs. I don't know. Yeah, uh, they had a whole bunch of different types that uh, throughout the years. Yeah. I, I decided not to go into too much detail about that. <laughs> it's, it's 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 less interesting to us. Uh, let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, one of the things that I liked about this minute is as as you mentioned at the beginning, the reactions of both Neil and Dell to the things that the other one says. You know, we see that Dell is is clearly hurt by the things that Neil is saying to him. And when when Dell responds, we see that Neil realizes how, that he went too far. Yeah, and and, and the uh, the cinematography here is uh, pretty impressive because both shots of of the men uh, are fa- straight on. They're looking, they're directly yes. looking at each other. I mean, we're not looking, we're not. It's not first person, but it's pretty close to first person where they're they're staring at each other. And the the reaction shot when they cut back to John Candy is uh, is right. very heartfelt. You feel you feel for him like you hear he's been dressed down by this guy and he doesn't mean to be obnoxious. But that's but, the way it comes uh, out. <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, do you have anything else for for this minute before we move on to the, the other segments? No, an impressive. It, it's an impressive minute, and it really uh, gets down to the the skills of both yeah. actors. So it's a, a very very nice minute. If you're gonna if you're gonna you know do a shorthand of how this movie works and why what you know what are the strengths of these actors, this is a perfect minute. Yeah, to, especially to given the fact that 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 this was all ad libbed. You know, makes it makes yeah. you wonder how many times yeah. they had to redo this scene in order to just get it right. I wonder. I wonder if they got it the first time. Pity, pity the poor editor who has to, you know, fit them all together. And it's like, well, we can use this for take three and this from take seven, and just hopefully the the the, the conversation right. still makes sense. That's true. So in in the the original script, there is no changes from the scene because the scene doesn't appear in the original script because of the fact that it's ad libbed. Wow. So every Monday we we do a a short little segment called Martin Monday, where my guest will actually give us his top five performances of Steve Martin. Now Jim is already given us a little bit of a hint that he's not the biggest Steve Martin fan. So it's going to be interesting to see what you're fine. I would say, I would say, no, I'm not, I'm not a, I I am not, not a Steve Martin fan. I'm a, I I love his work. I think he's a great, especially his writing. If you ever read any of his, his um, writings all the way, you know, all the way back from his uh, painful shoes um, uh, books and and things. He's a great writer. He's a great screenwriter also. He he does have some, some great, movies that that he's written yeah oh yeah for sure and you know and and he's also shown his directing chops in in other films so i i think and and starting out as a writer on the smothers brothers uh summer summer show back in the 60s i mean he he wrote some really clever stuff a lot of stuff for pat paul i mean i know i'm talking with a lot of the audience who's never watched some of these (laughs) things because i was i was a kid at the time watching it but um but yeah i I was going through what i like most in steve martin's career at least on screen and uh, we'll start with the number five. Yeah. I'll go mm-hmm. we'll have a countdown. Uh, number five. I loved, I loved him in, uh, by the way, his, his partnership with Carl Reiner, I think was his high point. He, he did the jerk and things like that with, yeah. with Carl Reiner, but he did a bunch of successful movies. Um, one of the ones, number five that I'm talking about is uh, all of me. Oh, I love that Tomlin. movie. And it's so now there is where he comes across being frustrated and the ability he, in the movie, he winds up with the soul of a uh, dying old lady Lily no, she died. in she him died. and he she died yeah yeah and and like he gets he gets his her soul dumped into him and he has to play roles where he is 
two people in one body and he he has this thing where he's walking down the street after he's yeah. turned in he, and, and and just watching him drag himself along as if he's two people was astonishing yeah his um, physicality I, there there's no question about how amazing that is and being able to just express his frustration was was perfect in that in a film i enjoyed that yeah. um another uh, another number four my it's kind of tied because it's really the same character um when he was uh in the 1978 film, um, the uh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, he played um, Maxwell of uh, Maxwell's Silver Hammer, and he only has like about a three-minute role in it. He pretty much redid that when you watch uh, Little Shop of Horrors being the dentist. He's just this horrible guy, and he's enjoying singing, and he sings <laughs> you know, the lyrics of Maxwell's Silver Hammer that he's, he kills people with a hammer. But he just does it with such glee when he's talking about stuff in this in the film and just completely overacts the scene when he's it is a musical. But he's just it's perfect over the top performance. And even though he's only in it briefly, it's one of the highlights of that movie. Um, number three, of course, I would say uh, uh, Carl Reiner, the Carl Reiner film, The Jerk, uh, spot on. He does just such a great job and he, working out all the gags with Carl Reiner, who had such an experience with you know, people like Sid Caesar working on the Dick Van Dyke show and things like that. It's like, it's a great, uh, broad comedy slapstick, um, and, uh, beautiful callbacks in it. I think that's, that really, the jerk is what really puts, uh, Steve Martin in the role of a major motion picture star. Yeah. Um, my uh, one that isn't mentioned enough, I think, uh, is another Carl Reiner film that, uh, that he did with universal, um, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which is a, an homage to hard-boiled detective films, but done as a comedy. Uh, Steve Martin and Rachel Ward and Carl Reiner are in the film. Uh, very clever idea, similar to what uh, Woody Allen did with Zellick in taking uh, old stock footage, in this case, Hollywood movies, yeah. and placing himself in um, like an A-B shot where he's talking with people like Bogart or Alan Ladd or um, Ray Moland. And he's in a 1940s movie, shot in black and white. Uh, very clever use of all the tropes of hardboiled detective films. Uh, yeah. So I just enjoy that very much. Uh, my number one film, the the film that I I enjoy the most of Steve Martin, and one of which I've considered in the past of making a movies by minute project about it is I I love movies about movies, and um, my favorite Steve Martin film is uh, uh, Bowfinger from. Uh, uh, directed by Frank Oz, Yoda himself, and uh, it stars uh, Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy. Steve Martin is a struggling uh, movie producer and wannabe director who uh, he tries to make a movie with a big name star. At the time, it would be Eddie Eddie Murphy playing another big name star. Uh, Eddie Murphy doesn't want to be in his film, but uh, through a series of uh, subterfuge and con games. Uh, Steve Martin and his gang of uh, production people could cajole Eddie Murphy into acting in their move in his movie by filming him secretly and just getting his reactions and dropping him in. Uh, it's a very funny film. If you haven't seen it, I'd strongly recommend uh, watching this. This is a, a real P and it was also written by Steve Martin and it, it's very much uh, top of his game, both in acting and, uh, and writing uh, very funny uh, cast of characters and uh, clever takes on everything from uh Gosh, uh, Hollywood uh, rental shops to Scientology. And, yep. uh, well, well worth seeing. All right, great. Thank you very much for that top five. So the other segment that we do every day is the off the beaten track segment where either myself or my guest will tell a little anecdotal story of misadventure or adventure 
of something that happened to us along the way, which obviously fits in really well with this whole diatribe from Steve Martin, where he's talking about that anecdotes have to have a point. So hopefully you have a nice story for us, Jim. Yeah, I, I don't have one on – well, actually, I do have one on planes. No trains are involved, but there is an automobile at the end, but it's a very tiny automobile. Um, my first my first flight on an aircraft, I was uh, seven years old. I, I was um, Boxing Day, the day after Christmas in 1967. Um, my parents and I flew to Bermuda from New York, and uh, we stayed at a hotel that no longer exists now called the Castle Harbor Hotel. And it was – it really wasn't much things to do for kids there, but they had – it's um, – at the time, uh, Bermuda is Bermuda is a British colony and is a British Commonwealth now, but it was very British. They had afternoon tea and all kinds of things, lots of stuff for grownups. But when I was a seven year old, there really wasn't much for the little kids to do. But my dad noticed in a shop in the uh, uh, in in this uh, Castle Harbor Hotel, there was a shop that sold little toys, and one of them were Matchbox cars. Everybody's you know played with Matchbox cars, and uh, back in the sixties, Matchbox cars were a big deal. For fifty cents, you could get yourself a you know, a little Jeep or a, or a, a truck full of uh, cattle or uh, a tractor and things like that. So anyway, my dad bought a couple of these things so I could, you know, run them along the railings in the lobby and stuff. And I was, I was playing with these things. I was sitting in a, in a chair in the lobby and I was, I was running them along um, a shelf and a man came by and picked up one of my, uh, one of my little matchbox cars. And he turned to uh, someone, uh, with, that was with him. And he said, you know, no matter where I go, I can't get away from these things. And, um, <laughs> my dad, my, my dad was sitting next to me and, uh, my dad introduced himself and said, I'm, I'm Jim O'Kane. He's, I'm a junior. So he, he shook his hand. He said, I'm, and the man said, I'm Leslie Smith. And, um, it turned out Leslie Smith was one half of, he and his friend Rodney Smith, uh, took their first names and smashed them together and uh, invented a company called Lesney which uh, went up against uh, Dinky Toys and Corgi and uh, built Matchbox cars. And this guy was the the head of the Matchbox company. Wow. And, uh, you know, here I was, <laughs> here I was playing with a, something that he had invented. And um, it was, uh, it was, it was a, he was the largest manufacturer of automobiles in the, in the uh, United Kingdom. Uh, of course, they were all about, you know, two inches long. <laughs> long <laughs> but uh uh he worked with uh with another fellow who um uh, another fellow came up with these ideas because his daughter was upset because she could take toys to school but they had to fit within the inside of a matchbox so he built cars that would fit inside of a matchbox and that, hence the name and the company and wow. it grew it grew up huge and uh after i met him uh the year after he uh uh he became uh in, in in competition with uh, Mattel, as we're bringing this back full circle, Mattel came out with Hot Wheels, which were, um, instead of having uh, solid plastic, they had hollow plastic, and they could go faster on a track. And uh, it really put a dent in Matchbox's uh, sales. Eventually, they, they came out with their own line of hollow-wheeled cars and uh, went up against them. But uh, Mattel beat uh, Matchbox. Matchbox, I think, sold out to a, a Hong Kong company in the end of the 20th century sometime but uh there I was meeting uh uh at the time i did not know it but he was a uh, uh, he was knighted by the queen he was uh sir leslie smith obe and uh that was wow. my, my brush with fame mr mr matchbox and uh, all about a plane and an automobile cool that is such a great story thank you very much for that so you want to tell people how they can get in touch with you or where they can find you uh 
you can f- actually as we're as we speak even even now uh i am well, along with uh, 25 other um ma- movies by minutes hosts are doing a group project this is our fifth group project we're doing the silverado minute where we discuss the 1985 lawrence kasdan directed feature with uh kevin klein and scott glenn and kevin costner all the all the kevins were in that movie I don't think Kevin James was in it, but uh, yeah, it, uh, but we do these as kind of a, a sampler of uh, of movies by minute hosts that each each uh, group gets uh, one week, and uh, we have a lot of a lot of people on board, and uh, hopefully, if you know, if, if you've been wondering about the movies by minutes uh, process, uh, tune in and you can hear how different people approach the same movie from different directions, and that's it. Uh, you can find that on, gosh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever, wherever you're probably getting this podcast you could probably find our podcast so check that out it's also at the big site silveradominute.com wow that sounds really fascinating maybe maybe i should check that out too (laughs) (laughs) people are gonna have to wait a long time until they hear me on that one my 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 weeks come in a few months from now so they'll they'll be here and they're good ones i'm sure so i think so let's hope other people do too (laughs) all right so and to find me you can go and just do a quick search anywhere for Movie Rob Minute. You can find me on Twitter, on Facebook, or you can go to our website. And while you're doing that, you can go rate, review, and subscribe on any podcatcher that might be using to listen to this show. So until tomorrow, you're f***ed. Yep, basically, you're f***ed. <laughs>